I'm excited uh, to be opening the Word with you today. We are in Acts chapter 3. Um, we're going to be in verses 1 through 16 today. Um, if, you're, if you have your Bible turned there, um, then you can go ahead and uh, know that you won the race and you beat the neighbor next to you in the pew. Um, but for everybody here with us, I'm going to invite you to stand with us today. We stand out of reverence for God's Word as we read it. And uh, today, member of the church, David Daw, um, is reading our text, also getting married in 20 two days. 20 days. 20 days. 20 days. 20 days. Um, so uh, wish him and, and Sangeeta a happy wedding soon. But, yeah. uh, but for today, he's going to read the passage for us. Okay. Uh, Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 16. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at an hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering. Entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. He took... He took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one that was sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utter, utterly astounded, ran together, wait, ran together to them in the uh, Portocio uh, called uh, Solomon's. Um, and, when saw, and when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you, why do you stare at us, as though our own power or piety? Uh, we have made him walk. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. You denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To, to this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has, been, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man the, per, the perfect health in the presence of you all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. Let's pray together. Fathers, we open your word. We recognize that your word uh, remains forever. Lord, the flower fades, the grass withers, but your word remains unfading, undefiled, never losing its power, never losing, Lord, the fact that it is from you. And so as we open it, Lord, we pray that you would, by the Holy Spirit, grant us wisdom to understand, to receive this in faith, Lord, to obey it so we might glorify you in the way that we live. And Lord, that you would show us more and more beautiful things about the salvation that we have been given in Christ Jesus. And we ask all this in his name and in the power of the Spirit. Amen. So where are we in the story of the book of Acts now? We have made our way into chapter 3. Um, we've really closed off kind of the introductory material to the book of Acts. You have chapter 1 where it really 
um, God establishes the apostles as the witnesses of the resurrection. And then in chapter 2, you have um, the day of Pentecost where God really brings the new covenant into reality and into substance and thus also um, births the church there in chapter 2. Um, and then at the very end of chapter 2, right, we talked about this last week, there's this quick summary statement of the things that the church was doing right away after the day of Pentecost. One of the things that's mentioned in there is the um, wonders and signs that were being done through the apostles, which is how we end up in this story today. Luke begins to give us examples of the wonders and the signs that are done by the apostles and also the things that happened to them as a result of that. Really, um, section, uh, chapters 3 through 8 of the book of Acts all deal with life in Jerusalem. It's funny enough that uh, Jesus' own words that Luke quotes in Acts chapter 1, that you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, to Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, is the outline for the book of Acts as a whole. So right now we are squarely in the Jerusalem section up until chapter 8. And this story, like I said, is a, a story that is um, showing us what it looked like when the apostles were doing these miracles, the effect it had on the people and also the things that they were teaching. And so today, as we go through this, there's really uh, three main sections to this that I want us to talk about. The first is ordinary obedience to Jesus. Ordinary obedience to Jesus in uh, verse 1. And then there's glory given to Jesus as we read through the account of the miracle. Um, glory given to Jesus. And then lastly, there is the work that is finished by Jesus. There's obedience to Jesus. There's a glory given to Jesus. And then there is work finished by Jesus. That's kind of what we're working through today. Verse 1, I want to uh, call our attention to something in particular on here, because as I use the word ordinary about this story, it probably seems incredibly uh, wrong. It seems incredibly crazy that you would put the word ordinary in this story. After all, it's a, a very extraordinary story. But there's something really interesting in here uh, in this verse to me. It says, when Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, which by the way, is 3 p.m., which is why we have our church gathering at 3 p.m. Not really. That's a bad joke. Don't laugh at that. Um, but the, the apostles were going there because there was a call to pray, um, carrying over from the Jewish, um, the old covenant, for the people of God to go and pray at the ninth hour. Um, and so this is something that we read last week, that this is just a normal part of the, the Christian's life. They were devoted to, among other things, prayer especially corporate prayer, they would go to the temple every day, they would pray, and then they would probably sit down at Solomon's portico and hear the apostles teach them what Jesus had taught to the apostles. That was kind of a day-by-day -day thing. If you go back and read Acts 2, 42 through 47, it'll emphasize over and over again that this is stuff that happened every single day. So the apostles here are not doing a trip that is out of the ordinary. They've probably seen this very beggar before several times. They are not hunting for miracles in this moment. They are doing very ordinary things. And we don't know how much time has passed really between um, the day of Pentecost and this story right here. The book of Acts doesn't say um, there's been two weeks since Pentecost. There's been 31 days or a whole year. There's no real indication in this text about how long it's been. And sometimes I think that we um, we need to remember the fact that the book of Acts covers 30 whole years of church history. 30 whole years of history, and it covers geography all the way from the Middle East in Jerusalem all the way to Rome. 
It's a big span of time that we're talking about. So I don't want us to read through the book of Acts. You might just read through chapter after chapter as Luke has picked out the really notable things for us to know. And you might think, boy, the early church just saw miracles every day. They just saw like probably every hour. They could just not walk a few feet down the street without somebody being healed from being blind. Somebody coming back to life. They just saw this all the time. Now I want to encourage you that the early church's life is like your church's life had tons of ordinary time in it. Tons of ordinary time in it. You see, the the disciples were not going to the temple that day because they were told that a miracle would happen. Peter and John didn't have any indication that that was going to be there. At least it's not recorded for us. They were going there because it was what they were supposed to do. They were devoted to it, just like Jeremy preached on last week. So if there's any clear message for us as a holdover from what we heard last Sunday, any clear example or message for us as we look at the example of the early church, it's that our trust should be in God working through ordinary things, not necessarily in extraordinary things. Our, our, our trust as a church, our, our, our direction, our, our obedience is driven not by a desire or a necessity for miracles to happen every day or else we won't obey God. Instead, it's done in ordinary ways because we know that God works through those ordinary things most often. The apostles in the early church weren't waiting to be devoted to those things. They weren't waiting to go to the temple to pray until God said, there's going to be a miracle, so go. They went there because it was the faithful, it was the right, it was the thing to do. And so as you read through that list, I'd encourage you to read through that passage that Jeremy preached on again from last week. Read through it this week and think about it like, how do I approach those things? Do I approach those things when God has promised that there will be something remarkable in them for me? Do I approach those things when I feel really motivated to pray, when I feel really motivated to go to the scriptures, when I feel really motivated to get to church, when I feel really motivated to worship or to break bread or to invite somebody into my house, into my life and be hospitable? Do I do those things when there's a great promise attached to them? Or like Peter and John, am I going to the temple because it's the thing to be devoted to? Because it's an ordinary means, but God has promised to work through ordinary things, right? He uses foolish things to shame the wise. The way that God's kingdom has worked for thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years now is through a whole lot of ordinary things, with moments of extraordinary happening, but through a whole lot of ordinary things in the meantime. So don't despise the regular trip to the temple, so to speak. Don't despise the ordinary picking up of your Bible when there's no miracles attached to it. See, the miracles come in the midst of ordinary obedience and faithfulness. They don't come because of the ordinary obedience and faithfulness. You and I often, I think churches, people so often today, we can become really whiny and we can sit around and say, oh, I just wish we were like the early church. Oh, I just wish we were that beautiful, that perfect, that pure. It's like, man, because we have that idea that they just saw those miracles all the time and it was just this remarkable time to live. And yeah, there's miracles happening all the time, But they were doing tons of ordinary things. Tons of ordinary things. And that should be our, if we have a strategy as a church plant, we're not a church that gets hung up a lot on strategy, but if we have a strategy as a church plant, let's let it be in the ordinary things. Let's let it be just like in Peter and John. We're going to go to the temple because it's the right thing to do. We're going to go to the Word because it's the right thing to do. We're going to worship because it's the right thing to be devoted to because we have Christ and He's given that to us. 
Because when we are remarkably dependent on these ordinary things, then when miraculous things happen, the glory goes to God. So let's not try to be remarkable. Let's not wait for remarkable things. Let's just try to be remarkably faithful and hopeful that God will bless it. But when, remar- when remarkable things come out of ordinary things, then God gets the glory, which is what we see here as we read through this account of this miracle. This glory gets given directly to Christ. I want you to think about this story for a second, because it can be so easy to read it, and maybe you've heard it before, and you just read it on paper, and the Bible isn't, like, illustrated. It doesn't have, like, colored text or big, bold print to, like, help you, like, have emotion in regards to the things that you read. Um, and so you just read through the story. You might just be like, oh, that's cool. This guy was lame, and he was, he's walking now. But I want you to think about it for a minute. If you were lame from birth, or your family member of yours was lame from birth, he's never, ever, ever walked. And he also wouldn't have been able to get into the temple in that day. So this man, every day, has been carried, probably by his family or his friends, to the steps of the temple and never been able to go in. And every day he's had nothing to do but to beg and to hope that people would give him enough money to help the cost of caring for him that his family would have had to foot the bill for. So he's just sitting there and seeing probably countless people walk by, and then the apostles come, and he, he asks to receive alms from them, some money or some food. And Peter stops that day, and for whatever reason, the Spirit working in Peter, most likely here, he stops, and he says, look at us. Probably, in a little, probably with a little more authority than that. Probably a look at us. Look at me. And as he looks at them, it says he was expecting to receive something from them. I just want you to think about what he was expecting to receive like 50 cents, a dollar, maybe, like five bucks if these guys are generous. You think there's ever, there's not even a piece of this man, I think, that is expecting to receive what he actually was given. And so Peter looks at him, and he says, again, probably with lots of authority, rise up and walk which is an outrageous thing to say to someone who has never walked in their life. It's an absolute nonsensical, crazy, insane thing to say to someone who has never walked. And he doesn't only do that. He actually says it, and then he goes and starts to help him up, right? He doesn't just tell him to walk and then just wait to see what he does. He's like, no, you're walking. You're getting up. You're walking right now. You're healed right now. And you can see this man start to stand up, start to trust his legs a little bit more. It says he leaps up when he realizes that he can. It says he's not just walking, but he's walking and leaping. He is running. He's excited because for the first time in his life, he's walking. For the first time in his life, he's entered the temple, the place where everybody else could go to be close to God. And all the people around him Obviously, this causes a stir, because if he's there every day, everyone knows who he is. Everyone passes him every day, and they have varying degrees of sympathy that they feel for him. And today, that guy is walking. He's no longer outside the steps, but he's inside the temple, running around, jumping, and dancing. And so they follow the apostles to Solomon's portico to hear about what in the world just happened. If you knew him that day, you knew him, if he was your brother, your 
your father, your husband, your cousin, I think that'd be a pretty amazing day. Well, you, you wouldn't just react to it like, oh, that's cool. Hmm, that's interesting, and God can walk now. This man's life has been radically changed. I draw your attention to verse 6. Peter says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Why does Peter use Christ's name there? Right, he doesn't use Jesus' name there because Christ's name is, is like a magic phrase that you can tack onto something. And if you say it the right way, like abracadabra or something like that, it's going to work, whatever you want. Right? It's the same way that when we pray and we pray in Christ's name, it doesn't mean that we've, we've like claimed something that uh, God has to listen to because we've said a magic word. No, instead, Peter is saying, in the name of Christ for a specific reason, so that whenever this miracle happens, it's clear to everybody that the authority of Christ is what made it happen. The way that he says, in the name of this, I mean, think about it, even as a police officer would, I mean, I don't, I don't know that police officers even say this anymore, um, but at least in the TV shows, you would think about them saying, stop in the name of the law, right? So what are they saying there? They're not saying like, oh, if I say in the name of the law, you have to stop. You physically can't move anymore. Instead, they're saying you have to stop based on a greater authority. Based on a greater authority. And so he says to call upon Christ's power and authority in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk so that when it happens, everyone would know where it came from. And he goes on to clarify this even more if you go into verse 12, as all these people are wondering about what's going on, Peter says, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? That word piety might not be a word that you use very often. I wouldn't blame you if you never use that word in your life. That's okay. Um, that word piety, a way that we could kind of uh, substitute that, maybe a different translation in your Bible that you have, says something about faith or about godliness or faithfulness. Peter is really clear here. It wasn't our power or our ability. It's nothing in us at all that made this miracle happen. It's not even like the apostles had such a great and pure and perfect faith that they could claim some kind of miracle that you and I don't get to claim because our faith isn't as good as theirs. And that's a tremendous comfort for you and me because what that means is when you go and you pray to God and you ask for amazing things and ridiculous things and you ask for things that are huge and beyond your ability to comprehend, when you do ask for things that are miraculous, you don't have to do it on the basis of having good enough faith that he would hear you. No matter what anybody, um, whether in person or on TV, preaches to you, miracles do not happen because the person's faith is so good that God has to give it to them. Miracles happen by grace. Miracles happen by the power of God. They happen by the authority of Jesus Christ. And we can pray with boldness for things because they come that way. If it was about how good and how pure your faith had to be, like you could, you could get someone healed because of how pure your faith was, I, I, I think that the faith of the apostles probably was purer than mine, probably was stronger than mine. And if he's the one saying, no, this isn't because of my piety, it's not because of my faith, then I don't want to pray and bank anything on my faithfulness either. So you can go to God and pray these prayers for miraculous and big things, 
because it is not about how pure you are and how perfect you are on your own, how perfect your faith is, whether or not there's any doubt in you, you can go there and say, Christ has made me acceptable in the sight of God. My God loves me. He wants to give me good gifts, and I can pray to him and have a hopefulness that he will respond. The other side of this is that Peter is obviously very scared that he or John would get the glory for the healing that has happened. This will come up throughout the book of Acts as we deal with um, a story about Herod later on in the book. If you want to read ahead, you can do that. Um, But it's very clear that Peter and John want the glory to go to Christ and not to them. He even goes on to say it was the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God that they know who has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. It was that God who did it, not us. And that needs to be a similar attitude we need to have as a church. Our attitude as a church, when amazing things happen, when more people get baptized, when more people come to faith, when more people's lives are, um, are changed through the power of the gospel, when families are rebuilt, when, when people are redeemed and set free, when habits and addictions are broken and these things happen, we need to be so careful and so clear that it was not us who did it. When more and more people start showing up, we shouldn't just welcome them in and say, oh boy, you're going to love it. Like the music team today is the best music team we have. You're going to love it. Or, oh man, the kids' ministry today has just got this fantastic thing. Or boy, the, the preacher today is just going to do fantastic. No, the glory that is here The glory that has any power at all is God's glory, His worth. His name is the one that is to be praised. If there's one verse that I want to encourage you as your pastor to pray for this church, maybe daily. It comes from Psalm 127. It says, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain those who build it. You can pray that about your life as well, but please pray that for our church. Especially as we are in a church plant stage, seven months old, so early on, right? The cement is not set yet, right? Pray, Lord, you build the house. Because we could build a fantastic looking house if we wanted to. With enough money and enough talent, you can build some great looking churches. And they will, they will be absolute dumps in terms of their worth and their value. So we want to pray all the time, Lord, you build the house or else we are wasting our time. Because the, the, look at this miracle as a whole. What's the purpose of this miracle, right? This miracle is not accomplished through the power of the apostles, and it's also not accomplished for the glory of the apostles. And so it is with us in our church. The, the means of the church, the power by which the church grows and is fed and is matured, is not the power of the church. It's not the power of the preacher, it's not the power of the the music team. Again, all the ministries of the church, all the clever things we can come up with. No, the power is God's power. He is the one that builds the church. And the goal of his building the church is his own glory and not ours. Please, let's be careful as a church forever to not bring any glory to ourselves. All we are is a bunch of sinners who have seen God's grace. This is what Peter points to as he goes into verse 13, as he talks about the work that Christ has finished. 
I'll read these verses so they're fresh in our minds here. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Think about how much those titles would mean to a Jewish audience. The God of our fathers glorified his servant, who? Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Now verse, um, 13, or verse 14 and 13 in particular are meant to call our attention to what happened right before Christ went to the cross, right? Christ was there and imprisoned and he was before Pontius Pilate. And Pontius, had, Pontius Pilate had um, rightfully recognized that Christ did not deserve to be put to death, and so he was going to release uh, Christ, yet the crowd, the Jewish crowd there, refused that and asked instead for a convicted uh, murderer, Barsabbas, uh, Barabbas, rather, to be um, given to them and released instead. So they directly foiled the attempt of Pilate to not have Christ put to death. And again, rem- when we read these verses, remember, he's speaking this to the people who were alive there and present when this happened. Think about the gravity of being told in this place, not just accused, but being told the truth that you had murdered the Messiah that was given to you. The one who had been hoped for for centuries and thousands upon thousands of years. The one who was supposed to be the Messiah for you, who was the Messiah, not just for Israel, but for all of humanity. He had come, and they had put him to death. Think about the weight that would fall on their shoulders as they did that. And Peter can proclaim this truth to them with confidence based on the fact that these miracles had happened. You, know, you might have heard in your life, you might have heard uh, things like speaking in tongues, as we talked about in Acts chapter 2, speaking in other languages that you don't know, um, or miracles. You might have heard them called sign gifts in your life. Um, before. You might hear them called miraculous gifts, which would count as well, but I think the word sign is a better word for us. And the reason that they're called signs is that they're supposed to signify the fact that the message of the apostles was true. God attended the preaching of the apostles and the ministry of Christ with these miracles so that it would be evident that it was true. However, I want us to think about it a little bit differently. It's not as though the sign gifts are there given to the church so that every time the gospel is proclaimed, there would be a miracle that has to happen alongside it. Instead, the, the right way, maybe the most correct way to understand what the uh, sign gifts were given for is that they are actually given to show the beginning of the kingdom of the Messiah. So they're supposed to show the onset, the beginning of his reign, not necessarily every time the apostles spoke, nor any time today that someone speaks should we expect a miracle just to follow because the gospel has been proclaimed. I want to point you to Matthew chapter 11. You can turn there if you want. It's just a few pages to the left in your Bible. Um, But in Matthew chapter 11, Christ has been ministering in, uh, in Judea. And John the Baptist, right, the final, last Old Testament prophet, if you will, the final Old Covenant prophet to come before the Messiah came, was in prison. And he heard about the things that were happening. And he sent messengers to Jesus to ask him, if he was truly the Messiah. That's where we pick this story up. 
Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Are you the Messiah, are you the promised one, or are you just another prophet? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. And he quotes Old Testament passages here. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. All these things that Jesus quotes are all prophecies in the Old Testament that are talking about the time that the Messiah comes. So all these signs are definitive proof that the kingdom, that the kingdom has arrived, that the Messiah has come. Now the reason I'm like stressing this point is again, we don't need to walk around today and think that we need miracles to accompany the truth about Christ in order for anyone to believe it or in order for it to be true. Right? God sent those miracles when he did in particular um, and especially for the reason of verifying once and for all that the age of the Messiah had come. And so Peter could stand before them and speak with confidence and have his, his message verified by heaven with a miracle. But still today, I get to stand before you and speak with confidence because for centuries now, God has proven that this is the truth. That the Messiah has come, that his reign has begun. Now Peter goes on to say again that he was given to them, but they asked for a murderer to be granted to them instead. He calls him the Holy and Righteous One. I think it's amazing as the weight of that comment would fall on their ears that they were the ones who had refused the salvation that was given to them. It wasn't Rome. It wasn't Pilate. They had nobody else to pin it on but themselves. And they had chosen murder instead of the author of life. Think about those two, those two phrases so close to, it, to each other. They asked for a murderer instead. And, uh, you asked a murderer to be given to you, and you killed the author of life. And that right there is an amazing picture of what sin does. No matter what the, the sin is in your life, in my life, no matter what it could possibly be, I promise you it does the same bait and switch on every single one of us. It's something that promises you a whole bunch of life. It's something that promises you a whole bunch of happiness and joy and life and peace, and then as soon as you bite into the apple, it's a murderer, it's death. Right, that's how sin works, because it couldn't work any other way, right? When you're, when you're fishing, you don't like just throw the hook in the water, you put bait around the hook, right? When you're, if you're playing baseball, you don't tell the batter that a curveball is about to come, you just throw it, right? When you're going to break into somebody's house, you don't call them and say, hey, I'm going to come around 9.30 tonight, please be ready. And that's what sin does in your life and mine. It hides the death behind a whole bunch of promises of life. So the, the death, the, the wrath of God that was truly earned by the Jewish people for what they had done, it's the same as the wrath that you and I have earned for every single thing that we have done. But the amazing news that Peter, as he, as he turns here, he turns this corner so sharp. He says, not just that they put the author of life to death, but he really quickly says, whom God raised from the dead. 
the, the death, the murder that was warranted was not final. The sin that they had committed was not the last part of the story because God had raised him from the dead. And so today, no matter who you are, wherever you are, the same message applies to you that applies to these people right now. And that is that you have an opportunity in front of you. Though you and I and every single one of us have warranted God's wrath and the punishment for what we have done, we have turned our backs on the author of life. We've looked at his commandments right in the face. We've looked at him right in the face. And all we've done is spat at it. Still, God raised him from the dead. And he doesn't call you to do a certain amount of penance. He doesn't call you to work your way back. Instead, he says, just repent and believe. Just recog- All that word repent means, just means recognize your sin. Recognize the weight of it. That it is, in fact, true. But don't just stop there. Instead, recognize the fact that Christ has been given on the cross so that you can be set free. That's, that's an amazing piece of news, right? Like that Christ looked at you and me. And like I said, we're not there in the crowd when Christ is, when they're chanting crucify him, but it was the weight of all of our sin that put him on the cross. And before all time, before, all, before time was even invented, he looked and he said, I'm going to go and bear the wrath of God for them. This is the author of life. He decided to be humbled to the cross so that he could be raised up for you. And for me, he offers perfect reconciliation with God. And that reconciliation ends with a perfect healing and redemption that this miracle only points to. Right? This guy that received this miracle today, he later on in life had trouble walking again. He once again got sore knees and a sore back. At some point, he too died. Because this miracle is only a picture of what Christ is doing with the universe as a whole. Reconciling it back to God and bringing it back to the perfect state of creation it was before sin. And so today, I know when you read these texts, probably most of us in the room have stories in our lives that man, even right now, we're like, boy, I'd love that healing. I would love that miracle. We could point probably to four or five things in each of our lives that we would, we would love to have something, even if it's something exactly like this or very close to it. Man, it would be great if God would just heal it. And maybe you've sat through this whole sermon so far, and you have been thinking that very thing. I just want you to know I get that. But your, your ultimate hope, I want to put before you your ultimate hope, the truest hope that I can give to you, that Christ gives to you today. A healing right now, a change in your circumstances, even a radically amazing one like this is not what you and I so desperately need. We don't need a miracle that's going to last for a little bit, and then we'll still get old. We'll still have problems. We might still want the healing. We might still want that miracle, and that's fine. That's fine to want. 
but you have an ultimate hope that is so much greater. That whatever the circumstances you're walking through right now or you have worked through, and I know the word circumstances sounds trivial because like, man, the words like, it feels, it feels trivial to put the word circumstance next to things like cancer, the loss of a parent, the loss of a child. Whatever it is you've gone through, it is truly a circumstance. And God will one day radically and permanently change your circumstances. Radically and permanently and perfectly and eternally. He raised Christ up from the dead and he raised him up. Yes, there was still a hole in his side, a hole in his hand. Not because he was still dying, but because he was perfectly living. It says in 1 Corinthians that he was raised up incorruptible. Incorruptible, without any possibility of wearing out. No pain, no ache, no hangover from the grave. And you have that same exact hope. It's given to you in Christ. It doesn't come to us just by virtue of being human beings and being alive, but it does come to you, listen, most freely and assuredly by trusting in Jesus Christ today. Not tomorrow, not three years from now. Oh, I'll have another chance to repent, to do something good. About 20 years from now, I can feel it already. No, today. The scriptures are full of men and women who thought there was more time. Life around you is full of men and women who thought there was more time. But trusting Christ today is the answer. And if you trust in him, that hope will never put you to shame. we'll sing about in a minute, we have this hope of no chilling wind, no poisonous breath will ever reach that healthful shore where sickness, sorrow, pain, and death are felt and feared no more. And that's where we end this miracle. That's what I want us to, to walk away from this today. The reality of who God is, what Christ has given you, the author of life, the Holy and Righteous One has given you perfect and eternal life so you can walk forward today with a joyful and hopeful obedience. A joyful and a hopeful obedience. A joyful that you've been given all things. Hopeful that God will bless yours and mine, um, you know, measly little obedience and actions. That he'll use that in his kingdom. That he'll do great things with it. We can walk forward in a hopeful and joyful obedience. Even in the ordinary things. And we can point to him and give him all the glory when amazing things happen. But for most of all, just like this man who has received this healing, you today can walk and leap and rejoice in your God, the one who has forgiven all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. Pray together. God, I pray that you would give us a more sure hope, what we have received in Jesus Christ. Lord, you have conquered sin. You have conquered death. You have held up in front of us all the weight of our sin, and yet you've nailed it to the cross, set it aside, that we could come freely to be your children. God, we pray 
for more faith to be given to us, that we would be more hopeful in the salvation that we get to walk in. Lord, we pray all these things in Christ's perfect, holy, and righteous name. Amen.